0: Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechRunch's venture capital focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny,
1: how are you? Uh, I'm feeling okay. A little uh, sometimes misunderstood, but uh, like Jesus, I'm going to get through it. <laughs> if
0: you don't get that joke, wait about uh, 13 minutes and we will explain why that's actually very, very funny. And in the background there, I heard Natasha, one of our VC reporters. Tosh, how are you doing?
2: I am doing well. I'm really happy to see you guys this week. It's been a week and I just want to unpack. So here we are.
0: It has been a week. Before we jump into a small programming note, just to say that uh, next week we will not have Equity Monday. Instead, we will have Equity Monday on Tuesday because there's a holiday and it will not be me doing it. It's going to be Danny and Danny is super hyped to bring you the show. So tune in for a very special Equity Monday on Tuesday And I think that's the only thing we have. So we can just dive right into these funding rounds, which is exciting, frankly, because a company that we've talked about a lot lately raised a bunch of money and Tosh is gonna tell us what the hell is going on.
2: Yeah, so Brex, which sells a credit card for startups, has raised yet another extension to its series C round, uh, 150 million by DSP Global and Lone Pine Capital. It brings its funding somewhere around like 465 million, at least in known funding to date. We've been talking a lot on the show about the uneven impact of fintech amid the coronavirus pandemic and seeing Brex's six figure round was you know, yet another example of, of a fintech company defying <laughs> odds like Robinhood. And I believe Stripe recently.
0: So a question about this, because the numbers threw me off a little bit. We know they've raised $465 million, at least in equity funding, and they claim to have like $450 million in cash. So I, have they been hyper lean or has there been some, some debt used to limit their spend? Because I can't imagine that Brex, which bought every single billboard in like Northern California for some period of time, only burned through like $15 million. Danny, what, what do you think about their, their cash position?
1: Yeah, I saw those two numbers. I mean, I I think, you know, there is definitely been some debt, which has been announced a couple of times. And then my my guess is there's a little bit of the float, right? Because they're a credit card processing app. So some of those expenses, they're getting processed, fees come in, but the, the payments don't go out right away. So there's a little bit more maybe cash on the balance sheet that otherwise looks like. But at the same time, uh, don't forget that this is, what, originally a Brazil-based company that came to SF. And so I I think that there's also quite a bit of cost savings in that culture as well.
2: Yeah, that actually was something that their co-founder told me on the call when I asked what is it like to to serve a customer base that's really struggling right now? And for those who don't know, their customer base is just high growth startups that need cash on hand. So go, go to a credit card startup for that reason. And he de- he mentioned Brazil as kind of this this breeding grounds of of that that culture to to make it more conservative. Now I I, I struggle to completely believe that because like you mentioned, Alex, Brex has been this like opulent Silicon Valley story of of billboards and like they bought a cafe like this time last year so you know there's definitely part of the story that i'm waiting to see play out too
0: okay and like just to clarify my understanding they they hand out credit cards but they're effectively charge cards so you have to repay your balance um every month and then brex makes money not really on uh, interest so much as it does on interchange so like they get revenue based on how much people spend on their cards right
2: yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why um, Kate Clark from The Information, who I'm sure you all know, she, she reported a story about Brex, about how it's cut credit limits. And that was kind of the reason why it's a little um, hard to believe that Brex isn't using some of this cash to repair some of its relationships or um, give it uh, change their credit limits because they essentially cut credit, therefore cutting their ability to make money, therefore hurting their revenue. So it's a pretty clear logic in that way that it can't be doing as well as it was before the pandemic.
1: Or some of those deadlines have, you know, covenants in them and, and requirements that, you know, as, as the underwriting centers had to change because of the coronavirus situation, you know, they had to cut back, right? They may be mandatorily required by some of the rules of, of the debt that they've signed um, to do so. So they may not have had much of a choice in those, that situation.
0: Yeah, I'd be really interested to know. But that's the sort of thing we can't get on private companies and you can get on public companies because private companies don't have to tell you anything which is the enormous bummer of this part of the job because it's fun to speculate, but it'd be even more funner to know. Anyways, we're going to move to a, an early stage round. We're going to move away from like the hyper, hyper corns, whatever the hell Brex is. And um, <laughs> we're going to talk about the 958th company, I think, to try to make buying a house a bit more digital. So Danny, what's up with Spruce?
1: Yeah, so Spruce is trying to spruce up the process of uh, closing a real estate transaction and so they want to be sort of the central nervous system of the real estate closing so bringing everything together from title insurance to mortgage processing paperwork, to all the attorneys, lawyers, and everyone else involved, to do it totally digitally, to be an API for all these folks. And they just raised uh, this week $29 million in a Series B led by Alex at uh, Scale Venture Partners. And that's after uh, roughly $19 million in cumulative funding in previous rounds, uh, mostly led by Bessemer. And so what was interesting is that they've led about $1.25 billion of transactions on the platform over the last four years since it was founded in, in 2016, And the revenue has grown about 400% annually. So it's it's actually a really solid story, even in the midst of of coronavirus.
0: That's hot. That's really hot. But I I want to dig into the API element of this, because I have been covering a bunch of startups lately that have used APIs. I think they're all chasing that Twilio magic, that Stripe power, that Plaid win. And so I'm curious, how, how big is the API component of this? Is it how the service is delivered for every single customer? Or is it kind of an optional thing that some customers use, but not all of them? Uh, in terms of
1: Spruce? I think it's a mix. Obviously, some folks are just using it literally as a direct platform, but I think long-term, they want to integrate with a lot of other software packages. So they emphasize emphasized partnerships with companies like Morty, which I've covered in the in the mortgage space. So they they want to be kind of uh, uh, the umpire of that whole system, right? They're not underwriting mortgages. They're not the notary for a lot of the stuff. They're not going to handle the title insurance directly. They're the broker of the title insurance, right? So they play fair, so to speak, in the middle of that transaction. They're just trying to bring it all together at once. Now, what I found was particularly interesting, though, is you know so few transactions in real estate are digital today that even though coronavirus has come through, making it much harder to buy and sell a home, obviously no one's going out to a showing these days to buy a condo. But on the flip side, if you are looking to buy today, you can't do the classic closing in person, right? You can't have your lawyers and the, the seller's lawyers all in one place and sign a bunch of docs like that's impossible. You have to do something digital. And so it's sort of the, the best and worst times for this company. You know, obviously the real estate market is getting lower, but they have a, a better chance of getting a larger chunk of the pie going forward. But I, I wanted to talk about other things that are doing super well in the coronavirus con- context because I think we've talked a lot about edtech, but Masterclass seems to be on fire these days.
2: Yeah, so Masterclass raised 100 million in a series E round. Uh, Bloomberg broke the news earlier this month. The valuation that the CEO, David Rogier, told me was that it is way above 800 million, but he would not give a conclusion on that. So, and for those of you who don't know, Masterclass is this platform that sells celebrity taught classes. It can be humor from David Sedaris, cooking from Gordon Ramsay. Tennis from Serena Williams. That's their whole shebang.
0: It sounds awesome. And the, it's monetized on a subscription basis, Tosh, is like 180 bucks a year, which was like 15 bucks a month.
2: Yeah. So, you know, it's it's kind of ballsy of them that they have only one kind of subscription model. The reason I think it's ballsy is because that means they have to keep adding new content. And their content is really high in value. It's like documentary style. So, you know, they're an education company, but they sit on the cusp of entertainment which, as we all know, is not growing at the moment. The new funding, according to the CEO, is going to help them do that one class a week pace um, in terms of new okay. classes, but we'll see if that actually happens.
0: Okay, I have a question for the, for the, for the team here. Uh, aside from seeing ads for Masterclass, wherever you open your eyes, uh, have any of us actually seen one of the full programs for like the cooking show or the, the tennis show?
2: I have. <laughs> okay,
0: okay. I have not, so, no. Okay, well then, Tatosh, Then, uh, if like if zero is all entertainment and ten is all like fun, where did that one land? I'm I'm curious where the ratio is.
2: So, so I I uh, I watched Gordon Ramsay's, which I do not cook meat nor do I cook anything fancy, so it was definitely just for entertainment for me. Um, but I think that's a lot of what uh, MasterClass is selling. Also, it's not selling like we're gonna make you a pro chef. We're selling like, hey, come listen to Gordon Ramsay pontificate for the next. Twenty classes and and like feel better about like your usage of cucumbers or something like that. Um, and and a, a lot of their users also interestingly enough, because I'm nerding out about this company, is that they'll go from like, they'll sign on to to watch Gordon Ramsay, but then they'll go listen to Steph Curry. So I feel like it's more like for entertainment than for like trying to get good at different skills.
0: Okay, so it's not like I'm going to actually get better at forty eight different things. It's more that I'm going to go and and sample a bunch of stuff out there maybe pick up some skills and tips in different areas but mostly i'm making like what like a conversation material for myself later on like well you know Steph, you know he always steps back for that three on the left side of the court because everyone knows that when really you just saw it on master class or something
2: yeah i consider it like a work diary like i don't i think like i don't know about you guys but i think it's like I'm, i just started watching insecure i'm like fascinated by Issa Rae right now and i'm just like watching every interview possible by her and Danny, do you not know who Issa Rae is? No idea what
1: you're talking oh, about. She's
2: amazing and badass. Okay, so if you don't know who Issa Rae is, first of all, change that. <laughs> Second of all, I will I will help you get there. So she is the creator and star of an HBO comedy called Insecure. And she's kind of this really cool case of started her YouTube series and then moved into comedy and is now like I think she has a Golden Globe nomination and it's just a big deal, basically. And I would love to see a masterclass on someone like her. And I've been searching for these like really work diary-esque videos for her on YouTube like every night these days because I finished Insecure. And I think there's like this innate need, even for someone like me who's not into pop culture usually, that just wants to know how someone who is so dope um, got there and how they think and, you know, what they eat for breakfast. So, yeah.
1: I mean, I, I would imagine that they, they could have a, a product masterclass for people who create Clubhouse because what you can do is uh, you could really learn from the, the experts like Paul Davison, who was the talk of the town this last week. I, I got to tell you, it's like having been at TechCrunch so long, like, I just see these like cycles of history. Yeah. Like if you want to <laughs> talk about like teleology of history, like it's just amazing.
0: So, So time is a flat circle, as we all know, and there's a new hot thing in tech called Clubhouse, which is places where you can go in this digital environment, create a room, you can talk, you can give other people like talking privileges. You can give some people no talking privileges. And like anything with the rope and a wait list, celebrities have showed up. E40 was on there. If you're into West Coast rap, lots of people are kind of hanging out in Clubhouse. There's a huge waiting list. Mark Andreessen's in there. You're not. And therefore it's (laughs) hot. And so we were all kind of waiting for Clubhouse to raise a bunch of money at a valuation that we would all kind of point and laugh at. And it happened. They raised $10 million at a $100 million valuation. I don't know if it's pre or post money, but I don't, I don't really care hey, it's close post. enough. Post, there you go. Uh, notably, there's $2 million in secondary. So they, the, the founders got to cash out money up front, which is not super common at the earliest stages. This is the new hot thing. Forbes covered it. The Times covered it. It's a mini cultural phenomena. And before the show, we were riffing about previous things that had kind of caught fire and there was this era in, in tech. Uh, Danny, you were covering tech in this time. Tosh, maybe you weren't. But like uh, the old South by Southwest days, like, you know, it, there was the one year it was all group messaging. And the one year like Twitter really took off. And the one year I think Meerkat was hot. And so like, this feels to me, cynically a little bit, like another one of those cycles, if you will, just another wave of of, of hype. And maybe it'll be huge. Maybe this is the future of podcasting. But to me, it's a, it's a lot of money for a relatively immature app and like 48 users, just half of which happen to be VCs. What do you guys think?
1: No, I think it's exactly right. I mean, years ago, we covered an app called Secret, which for a long time, Silicon Valley desin- denizens uh, would probably remember, uh, was a sort of anonymous chatting app. It was popular among VCs, and it was a great way to kind of rat out what was going on in terms of deal-making for a very specific period in time. And David Bittow, the and, and his brother, who were the founders of the company, you know, they also took secondary. I mean, this is the part that I think is so amazing. So thanks to Alex Conrad at Forbes' uh, enterprising Reporting, but uh, managed to get the secondary details, which is that they took two million off the table at Clubhouse, which is exactly what Dave took at, at Secret years ago, and and, and famously uh, sort famously. of bought a red Ferrari, yes. uh, <laughs> either the same day or like right afterwards. And and there's nothing that says, hey, we're we've made it, like buying a red Ferrari in Silicon Valley. And so it it's eerie, like it it has all those properties. And I think, look, the reason you take secondary, the reason you're giving secondary to a founder, right, is is the VC is trying to incentivize you to go. Huge, not big, huge. So we're not talking about a ten billion dollar exit, you're trying to be the next bite dance, which is worth a hundred billion. And so in order to do that, you're trying to sell to the founders, "Hey, take two million today, and then I want you to go all the way to the end. Like, I want you to try to make this the biggest company that you can possibly make.
2: Got it. yeah, I was about to ask, like it it serves more just like as a deal sweetener than like a deal maker.
1: I think it's, believe it or not, it's oftentimes not the founders who ask for it. Oftentimes it's the VCs who foist it upon founders. I mean, most founders don't want to sell their companies. Obviously, they don't want to give up their own equity stakes. But, uh, you know, not to, I don't know, Paul, at all, uh, personally, but, you know, the, the concern is always, you know, San Francisco is very expensive. A house is two million bucks, and uh, if you want someone to go big and long for the next nine to ten years, you want them to own a house. You want them to have enough mm. money in the bank where they're not worried about breaking even, particularly if they're married or have kids. And so, oftentimes, yep. the VCs are saying, "Hey, you need to take secondary, and if you don't, I'm not going to invest in you because I think you're going to take the first, uh, you know, acquisition offer from Facebook for twenty million bucks, and you're going to quit in you know six months from now as soon as you get four million dollars off the table." And so by taking the $2 million now, the hope is, is that they'll go longer, the company will accrue more value, and ultimately everyone's happier.
0: Maybe. We'll Maybe. see. So we had Nico Bonazzos from General Catalyst and Alexia from DreamScene, our, our old boss and co editor of TC, who's now a VC. We had them on Extra Crunch Live earlier this week, and I was super curious. I was like, would you guys invest your own money, not money you raised from someone else, but like your literal checking account into Clubhouse at that valuation? I was like, I got them. There's no way they can wiggle out of this one. And they're both like, hell yes. And I was like, ah, damn. Because I I didn't think they were going to do it. But they were both like 10, 50K. Sure, we're in.
1: I I think you have to think of it as a portfolio, right? This is what consumer investing looks like today. You know, the return from one of these top companies is massive, right? Like ByteDance, the Chinese company that owns TikTok, and a variety of other platforms is worth upwards of 100 billion bucks. You know, and that was sort of the largest kind of consumer win going on right now. You know, whatever the next one is, you know, 10 million at 100 million post doesn't look like a lot if you can have one of those wins. So even if you do 10, 15, 20 of these bets, if one of those turns out well, that's what venture capital looks like.
2: I think that Clubhouse's exclusivity is like what's being focused on the most, but I don't think exclusivity is what's going to hurt it or limit it. Like Uber started as an exclusive company and that only just created the hype. That's not what's going to be like its downfall. I feel like what's it's going to struggle with is like, is it going to be important after the pandemic? The
0: service has also seen some early growing pains, like people showing up, changing their name to Tim Cook, drawing a big crowd and being like, haha, JK, I'm actually, you know, Danny Crichton. Everyone goes, boo, et cetera. <laughs> And right, so they're Danny. like, do they need a real name policy? Do they need new filters? When you have 10 times the people on here, does it work? Does it still feel intimate? We don't know. But um, we have to move on from Funny Rounds into the broader world of of uh, really what's been half the show for the last couple of years, which is SoftBank. And Danny is going to tell us exactly how much more money SoftBank's Vision Fund has to spend on startups.
1: This week, earlier on, on Monday, SoftBank released its annual financial report, which is really the only time of the year we really get the best data. So they they release all the data. Because SoftBank has so much stuff. We don't just get SoftBank. We get the Vision Fund. We get ARM Holdings, which is the the chip designs for everything in your smartphone. We get Fortress. We get Brightstar. We also get Sprint. So we get a huge amount of information always in this massive deluge. But the the part that I found most interesting, so in the, the footnotes to the financial reports, we actually got the opening and closing dates for the Vision Fund. And we learned that actually the Vision Fund officially closed its cash back in uh, September of 2019. And so uh, at that time, they hit 85% of the total value of the fund. So they closed it to new investments with the remainder reserved for follow-on investments and management fees. And so if you do the math between when the fund launched in 2017 and when the fund closed in 2019, the firm literally uh, put out about $100 million a day from the start of the fund to the end in terms of investments. So it, it really is like, I don't think there's any firm that ever comes closest I mean the most firms are smaller than this right like yeah. totally and they spend it over two to three years and and here they were writing those checks literally every day including weekends
0: okay so I'm doing the math here in my head there was 98.6 billion and there were 845 days but because they save 15% it works out mm-hmm. to like 85 billion 85 mm-hmm. 845 100 million I kept doing the math again in my head because I thought you had to be wrong, and I've done it like four times now, and, and you're right. That's that's an insane amount of capital disbursement. How many people do you think it took to do the paperwork, the procurement, and, and just like the,
1: the the grunt work to do that many deals, Danny? My understanding is the firm itself has up you know way beyond 100 employees i've heard you know a couple hundred but the, the key there is they actually hire a lot of consultants right so uh, everything from lek consulting i believe to McKinsey has been on some of these deals you know it's a really decentralized due diligence and operational firm hey look if you're getting billions in management fees you have a lot to work with in terms of hiring yeah, you have uh, external talent to get stuff down to
0: bring people on like you're not gonna be like well sorry we can't afford to hire an intern this year shucks you have, you have some cash. Let, let's do kind of a quick bullish and bearish on this because I think everyone knows the bearish take on the Vision Fund. Like WeWork fell apart. Uber is not doing great as a public company. Slack's done pretty well. Uh, the, the, the bullish take that I always hear, guys, and tell me if you've heard different things, is that there's so many companies in the Vision Fund portfolio, 88 in total, that there's going to be in time like an IPO every quarter from this fund forever. And so the return cycle could be quite long, quite lucrative. The question is, do we think that there's enough wins in the portfolio to make that Make that work out. So I don't know, Danny. If you had to put your money into this now, knowing what you know, would you uh put capital to work in the in the return cycle of the Vision Fund?
1: I would buy a stake in the Vision Fund at some discount to NAV for sure. How how big of a discount? NAV would you being require? net asset value for those who don't know, but the actual you know carrying capacity value of of the fund. Yeah, I, I would. I, I don't know what what a discount would look like. Twenty thirty percent. Oh okay. Oh, I'm a little bit more aggressive than that. You <laughs> okay. Know, I think, you know, you're buying at the bottom of the J-curve, right? So, I mean, this is as bad as it's hopefully going to be. Hopefully it's only up from here. The, the challenge is that SoftBank is just at such a high price in so many of these companies that, you know, even their winners may not look really much like winners. Like, you yeah. know, even if they double some of these companies, given the fee structure, given some of the debt that they've taken on to sort of leverage the return structure of, of the Vision Fund, you know, a 2x in some of their deals is just not going to pay the bills. Yeah. And so I think the question is, is, you know, is one of these companies where they put 200 million at, let's say, a billion post become the next $50 billion company? If that happens, you know, that could make a dent in some of their returns in terms of like getting to the numbers they need. But I, they need more than one of those. In fact, they need quite a few in order to make the math work. And it's hard to believe, you know, even with the quality companies they have on the portfolio, many of them are quite interesting. But uh, you would need at least, I think, five to 10 major, major returns. And let's be realistic. How often do we see companies that exit above 10 billion bucks?
0: Super infrequently.
1: We just don't see them that often. Then we need to have like 10 or 12 all at the same time in order to make this all work. So it's not, just tough not to see that at the same work. time, though, because they, they can be spread out. I mean, and, and
0: I, I want to go to Tosh in a second, but J-Curve, in case you heard Danny use that, uh, that phrase, is the venture fund return cycle, essentially. You put money to work, and then some of the investments immediately die. And so you go down. And then over time, the longer bets pay off. And so you're, it's like a swoosh, if you will, almost like a Nike swoosh of returns. And that's- how most of this stuff works out and so we're at the the, the nadir the worst part of this right now. that's Tosh. right and
1: it was inspired by the the clothing retailer j crew um yeah. which many vcs are no, known to wear in, in silicon valley
0: and that if you didn't catch it was a lie
1: all right was looking into it like i was being serious well I like... I, I, sometimes i'm serious it wouldn't surprise me <laughs>
2: um, i i was just gonna say that i feel like we're already seeing SoftBank's like Reputation hit and, and really high-profile struggles. Um, its second vision fund is, is nowhere. Is, is they're halting plans or it's stalling, at least. So um, I think that's also an important factoid to remember.
1: The best part of every SoftBank investor presentation is actually the presentation itself, which it, it, it's like a mix of you know, like a RISD student meets design student meets like intern at a business corp with some weird clip art from Microsoft Word, you know, circa 1990s. But, you know, in addition to me being misunderstood and potentially being Jesus, Mazasan apparently was also quoted as saying that he is often misunderstood and uh, like Jesus will come through with the vision fund. But uh, I'm curious, Alex, like what were your favorite parts of the presentation? Because there were a lot of great slides in that one. I
0: mean, it's really hard to say where to begin, because you're right, there's a lot of clip art. It does look a little bit like student in business school was on a bender and forgot to do their homework, and they've got 30 minutes before it's due. So they're in like the atrium of the business school, frantically adding like little unicorns to a deck, being like, <laughs> it it'll t- go up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that was my favorite slide. So there was a lot of discussion of uh, COVID-19, coronavirus like, stuff in this deck, talking about what happened to some companies and the, the change in the world. And that makes kind of sense, because the Vision Fund wants to talk big about the world and the changes and how they're you know going to get their way through it so they drew a picture of an upward slope and then a huge ravine and then an upward slope and there were three horses and two of the horses fell into the hole and died and one horse grew wings somehow and flew over the thing and was on the upward slope again and that's i, I believe the analogy is that's the vision fund and so if the third grade analogy they made there with clipart is enough to reinstill your faith in a 100 billion dollar investment vehicle great uh but it's surreal to me danny that they, they would they would do that and a deck that's so serious and that so many financial professionals are going to read and try to actually parse from this is not a game this is real money
2: yeah i think that's exactly why you know i didn't exactly laugh when i saw the slides and the jesus comment like it was just worrisome to me like you know i'm just not having it right now and i was hoping that there would be some some seriousness and I I just don't think it works for you if you're not doing well and if you had a whole implosion like I think I'm I'm surprised and I wonder what what their LPs were were saying to them
0: I don't really care what the Saudi Arabian government thinks ever I think we'll see the vision fund too the next time Metallica drops a new album so I don't know 2022 or somewhere in there (laughs) but I just looked at the clock and we need to squeeze in this last topic before we go and so it is time for everyone's favorite segment of equity entitled Danny Talks Luckin (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's my favorite part of the show, at least. Well, so so Same. so um, Luckin has had a lot of, uh, a spate of bad news, and the bad news is continuing. So um, rumors are that NASDAQ is going to delist Luckin Coffee, sadly, from its stock exchange, given the um, allegations of fraud that the company has announced, which was about a $300 million sales fraud, uh, <laughs> specifically <laughs> perpetrated by its CEO and CEO who've left the company. Yeah. And so unfortunately, one of the great success stories that we've talked about on Equity for a long time debuted uh, early or mid last year on NASDAQ, is now going to be pushed out. And not only that, they're going to leave a legacy in the United States, which is it is so bad in terms of fraud that actually the listing rules are going to change for NASDAQ. And so NASDAQ has proposed that for, for countries that have restric- restricted access around their accounting or, or um, transparency issues, um, China being one of them, um, their standards are going to go up for IPOs. And so luck may lead to better and stronger markets, but not better or stronger coffee.
0: Yeah. So sorry if you lost a bunch of money buying luck and shares. Your sacrifice will make for better securities law in America. <laughs> sorry for your your sacrifice. Uh, but there's another part of this, Danny. Tal Education Group, T-A-L Education Group. I was reading about uh, the recent report that says a bunch of their students are bots. Now, this is in the allocation phase. I don't think we know exactly what's going on there. But there is another possible fraud situation here with Chinese IPOs in the U.S., and this isn't even the first wave of fraud with Chinese IPOs in the U.S.
1: Well, to be clear, uh, it, Tal Education also has a scandal. You're thinking of GSX, which is another ed tech company Crap. out of China, which also has a fraud issue. Oh, um, my God. And, 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 I,
0: is there a theme here, Danny? Is there a theme <laughs> that I'm, the trend maybe that I'm <laughs> well, picking I think, up on? I
1: think it's been typical in a lot of these to prove growth really fast, right? And so the numbers just get ahead of themselves. Luckin' for us, we're going to have better security laws. Unluckin' for a lot of investors, they're going to lose money.
0: Yeah. Uh, And on that really, really optimistic note, we're going to close off the show. And uh, thank you all for for tuning in. And just as a last note, if you're still with us, thank you to everyone who took the equity listener survey. We got three figures worth of responses. The data has been super interesting. We're parsing it now. We're reading all of your comments. Uh, We're going to use that to tighten up the show and make it uh, even better as 2020 rolls along. So thank you for for giving us your notes. And Equity Cool will be back uh, not Monday morning, but Tuesday morning with Danny. Okay.
1: Bye.